Good morning. Uh, good to see you here uh, today. Um, I'm glad to have the pulpit in front of me so that there's something that I can lean on and it will keep me from falling, I hope. Um, and uh, it's a privilege again today to be able to share uh, from God's Word with you. As uh, the regulars here will know, we've been looking at the letters to the seven churches, which we have found in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the sixth church, uh, the church in Philadelphia. And that's uh, chapter 3, verse 7 uh, to 13. And uh, we'll read that now. Revelation 3. Verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So reads God's word. Uh, let's uh, just take a moment to pray again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who is there and who is not silent. You are a God who speaks, who has spoken, and who continues to speak today. We pray now that as we turn to your word, which you have given to us, we pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us that he will give us understanding, that he will speak to us, that he will help us to see Jesus more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to serve him more faithfully. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose the one thing that has really stood out to me over the past few weeks as we've looked at these letters to the seven churches and we've looked at the the first five, and now we come to the sixth today, is really the big thing that has stood out for me really is how important the church is to Jesus. How important the church really is to Jesus. That Jesus 
uh, reveals uh, through John that he is present with his church scattered throughout Asia Minor and he cares deeply about his church. Um, I suppose we, we sort of accept readily, we take for granted that Jesus came into the world to be our savior. That what is important what is vitally important, what is essential for every one of us is that we know Jesus as our Savior. He came to save us from our sins. He came uh, so that we might be forgiven. He came so that we might become children of God. He came so that we might have eternal life. That there's nothing more wonderful in a sense that he came down from heaven for our salvation. But that's not the only reason why he came. He also came proclaiming the kingdom of God. That was the whole theme of his message, the kingdom of God. Uh, And uh, he came to initiate that kingdom, but he's going to come back again to fulfill uh, that kingdom, to establish that kingdom in all its fullness, in all its completeness, in all its finality. He's going to come to, 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 to remake this world, to renew creation, He's going to come to reign over all forever. So there's that future dimension. It's the work of Jesus, which he has begun now, but which will come to fulfillment when he comes again. So in a sense, there's not only the the aspect of his personal, uh, personal salvation, so that we might be forgiven from our sins, but there's also this cosmic dimension that he's going to one day bring about a renewal of the whole of creation. So there's the personal salvation and there's cosmic uh, renewal. But in between, Jesus' purpose is to bring into being a new people, a people for his praise and glory, a people who will be like his family, a a people... uh, who will love him and serve him in the world today. He has come, in other words, to bring into being his church. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, I will build my church. He's come to bring together a people who know him and love him, obey him and serve him. So there's this vital purpose that Jesus has to bring into being the church, the people of God, his family. Uh, And this is why the church is so important to him. And if it's important to him, it should also be important to us. I mean, it's easy, I think, these days sometimes to get a bit disillusioned with church. In my years as a pastor, I discovered that quite often people will say, yes, well, I, I like Jesus, and uh, 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 but the church, I find it difficult. I, I don't always find it relevant. I, um, I don't always get on with some of the other people in it, you know. And while they love Jesus or profess to love Jesus, they sometimes find the church difficult. And sometimes they end up distancing themselves from it, uh, withdrawing from it, neglecting it trying to live their Christian life without any connection with church at all. But if the church is important to Jesus, then it ought to be important to us. If 
Jesus loves the church, then we should love the church too with all its faults and failings. Commitment to Jesus, I believe, also involves commitment to his church. So that's just my little introduction, really, uh, which I think covers uh, why these letters here are so important. But we want to come this morning to look in particular at this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, It follows the same pattern as the others. Uh, Remember, Drew has looked at each of the other churches as an introduction. Jesus is speaking to the church. Um, There's um, uh, what Jesus knows in each of the churches. Jesus says, I know I know there's something about the church that he knows which he wants to to, uh, draw attention to. Uh, And then there's a a therefore, if that's the situation, therefore, what follows from that? And then there's a because, because. So that has been the pattern that we've been looking at. Uh, Introduction, no, therefore, because. I'm going to do it slightly different today. Uh, But I think you'll still see that those three things or four things uh, will apply. I'm going to look, first of all, at the condition which Jesus sees, the condition of the church that Jesus sees. This is really the nose part, right? And then we'll, we'll look at the commandment which Jesus gives. That's the therefore part. And then we'll look at the the confidence which Jesus provides. That's the because part. Okay, so that's that's where we're going. That's how I'm dividing it up this morning. So let's first look at the condition of the church which which Jesus sees, the condition Jesus sees. And we find that in verse 8, right at the beginning of the verse. It says, uh, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Uh, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Uh, He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know your work. I've placed before you an open door. I think that means he's given them an opportunity to serve him. Elsewhere in the New Testament, that's how the phrase is used. You know, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him that that he will have an open door uh, to to communicate the gospel to others. So I think uh, uh, Jesus sees what they're doing. He knows that he's provided them with an an open door. He's given them the opportunity uh, to witness for him and to serve him. Uh, And they're they're doing that uh, faithfully. But... When you come down again to verse 8, it says, uh, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. This is something else he knows about the church. He knows that this this church uh, has really little strength. It doesn't have uh, great resources. It's not maybe... Uh, doesn't maybe have big numbers. It, it probably is lacking in resources. And so here's a church which is probably small, 
It's faithfully trying to serve the Lord. It's faithfully trying to bear witness to the gospel. It's faithfully trying to reach others. But they have little strength. And more than that, they actually are facing opposition. It says in verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So in this town, uh, there's not only a small church, but there's also a synagogue. And the, the members of that synagogue consider themselves to be the people of God. They think, well, we've got a great history. You know, we can trace our ancestry right back to Abraham. We have great privileges. God gave us the, the law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we are the people of God, not those Christians who are meeting down the road, uh, uh, that small group of people. No, we are the, the, the real people of God. And just as, as we see throughout the book of Acts, there was active persecution by these people, by those who uh, are described here as belonging to the synagogue of Satan, they're doing the devil's work. They're opposing and criticizing and persecuting the Christians. So here is, is this small church, a weak church, a persecuted church, and Jesus knows their condition. He knows the condition of this church. In actual fact, most churches are small. Um, even in America, where it seems everything is big, and you probably see that there are some great mega churches in America with thousands of people uh, going to them. But most churches actually are small. Um, as some of you probably know, our son-in-law is a pastor of a church in, in Massachusetts in a small town called Pepperell. He grew up in Maine, uh, the northern state of Maine. His father was a pastor there for over 30 years, and uh, he was a pastor of two small churches, uh, none of, neither of which ever grew beyond about 30 members. When people would grow up, they would move away and so on, and so he was always pastoring these small churches, and that's why our son-in-law, Stephen, um, he has a, uh, a desire to help small churches. Uh, he, he wrote a book about it a big gospel in a small place. And he helps to run uh, conferences called Small Town Summits. And he tries to get pastors together who are pastors of small churches to encourage them uh, and to encourage them to stay in the small church and not see it as a stepping stone to a bigger church. Most churches are small churches. I visited uh, Peru a few times to visit the Baptist churches there. And up along the Sierra, around the uh, Puno, uh, around Lake Titicaca, there are over a hundred uh, little Baptist churches that have been started by Baptist missionaries over the years. But all of them are small. None of them are much more than 20 or maybe 30 members. The people, mainly Aymara Indians, are all poor. They have very few resources. Most churches are small. We might think of ourselves as a small church. We're certainly, uh, uh, no, there, there are many others much bigger, but most churches are small. 
And in many parts of the world, most churches are persecuted. So we should pray for small churches. We should pray for them. We should pray for those churches in Peru. We should pray for those churches in uh, communist countries and Muslim countries where it really costs to be a Christian where they face persecution and opposition. So that's the first thing I see in, in this church. It's a small church. Faithful, yes, but small, lacking strength. Lacking strength and facing opposition. Well, into this situation, what does Jesus say to them? This is the, uh, if you like, the therefore. This is what they have to do. They're small, they're weak, they're faithfully trying to serve, but they're facing opposition. And what Jesus says to them, the command that Jesus gives, we see in verse 11. He says, hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have. There's no, the difference between this church and all the others is there's actually no condemnation. There's no criticism. There's no call to repent. There's just commendation and a command. And this is it. Just the one command. Hold on to what you have. Hold on. Hold on tight is really the, the, uh, the meaning here. You Hold on with a firm grip. Um, the same word is used in Acts 3, uh, where Peter and John, they go up to the temple and they heal a man uh, who's been crippled. And he's up jumping about, leaping about. And then we read that he seized hold of Peter. He grabbed hold of him. As people were coming around to investigate what had happened, this man who'd been crippled and now was healed, he held on tight to Peter. And that's the idea of this word here. It's not just a casual uh, touch, uh, but it's a real grip, strong grip. Hold on tightly to what you have. Um, uh, when I'm trying to cross the road with, uh, say, some of my grandchildren, there's one wee fella who's always jumping about and looking the other way and not concentrating on what he's doing. And I'm scared stiff he's going to run out in front of something. So I say to you, look, hold on tight to my hand and don't let go. You know, and I have to take him and, and hold his hand and have a firm grip on it because you never know just what he might do. So that's the idea here. This is the command that Jesus says. He says, Hold on to what you have. And what do they have? Um, well, they have his word. See, in verse 8, he says, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. You have kept my word. You have kept my word. Uh, and in verse 10, he says, Since you have kept my command, well, it's actually the same word again. I don't know why the NIV translates it differently. But if you have an ESV, I think it will use the word, word in both places because it's the same Greek word, the word logos. And if you remember the opening of John's gospel, it begins, in the beginning was the word, the logos. 
And that word we discover is Jesus. So when he says, hold on to my word, hold on to Jesus and, and his word. Hold on to the gospel that you've been given. Hold on to that. Hold, have a tight grip on it. Uh, hold on to that and keep on believing in it and keep on trusting in it. See, this is the command. It's a command which is for the, this church in Philadelphia. It's a command for us today. It's a command really for all churches. We need to pray for churches and pastors and, and for ourselves as individuals that we'll hold on to and not let go of the gospel. That we hold on to Jesus and keep on obeying him. I've noticed recently on, on YouTube uh, reports of one or two fairly high profile pastors in America who have given up their faith. Um, maybe you've come across some of these yourself, but you know they, they now talk about, well, they've deconstructed or, or they've deconverted. You know, they, they'd grown up with a, a faith, a, maybe a traditional orthodox biblical faith, but uh, now under the influence of the contemporary culture, um, they're beginning to look at things differently and they begin to say, to say well, maybe that, that faith uh, that I had in the past, maybe it's out of date now, maybe it's irrelevant now, maybe I need to think differently, maybe I need to take a different approach. And some have let go. Some have stopped holding on to Jesus and his word. Sometimes churches, whole churches can do this. They've started off well and good, but now maybe under the influence of contemporary culture and pressure from uh, society around them and the desire maybe to be popular and to be more relevant, they let go. They don't hold on. And it can happen to us too as individuals. You know, sometimes we can just grow cold. Sometimes we can just drift. And before we know it, well, we don't really have time for church anymore. Or we don't see it as being important to us. Or we just do other things. You remember, you know, Jesus, in that parable about the sower and the seed, he talks about seed that falls uh, uh, among thorns. And, and when he interprets that, he says, you, you know, that the the love for other things, uh, wealth and riches and, and just the business of life can, can crowd out their time for Jesus, time for the church. And so we all need to be on our, our guard here. We all need to listen to this command to hold on to what you have. Don't let go. Don't fall back. Don't grow cold. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep going. That's the command that Jesus gives here. So the condition the church is in is that it's lacking in strength. It's facing opposition, but it's faithfully trying to serve the Lord in, with the, in the opportunities they've been given. The command which Jesus gives is for them uh, to hold on to what they have. 
to keep on doing it continually, to hold on to his word, uh, to keep believing and obeying and not give up. And then the third part, uh, I think, is the confidence which Jesus provides. Um, how, How can they do this? How can they hold on? How can they do that if they don't have much strength? How can they do that if the opposition is quite fierce? How can they do that? Well, they can do that because, here's the because part, because of the confidence Jesus gives them. And he gives it to to them scattered throughout this message to them in a number of ways. I'll I'll really just mention them because we don't have time to go into them in detail this morning. But I can see at least, I think it's five ways. Uh, My wife hates it whenever I have sub-points. It's all very well having a few main points, but her heart sinks when she says, well, this is, this is point three, and now here are five sub-points. So for her sake and for everybody else's sake, I'll go through the five sub-points very, very briefly. First of all, remember, he's in control. This is why we can be confident in Jesus. He's in control. Verse seven, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. That might be a bit puzzling, but that's an allusion to uh, a passage in the Old Testament where a a man who was in charge of the palace, the king's palace, was given the key. And this is almost a direct quotation from Isaiah 22. 22, A man called Eliakim. Uh, He must have been some kind of glorified caretaker. But he had the key. He had the key. uh, And he could open doors. It's very important to have a key. If your door's locked and you come home, and you've no key. It's very frustrating. You can't get in. Um, that's why we always leave a spare key in the garage. But don't tell anybody that. <laughs> all right? In case we come home and you've been in. But anyhow, key, it's just a, a way of saying he's in control. He's in charge. He opens doors and he closes doors. He's the one in control. He's the one with authority. He's the one in power. He's in control of this situation. We can be confident because he's in control. We can be confident because he loves them. You see in verse 9, he talks about the opposition they're facing. And uh, uh, Jesus tells them that in some way or other, we're not sure how, he's going to vindicate them in front of this opposition. That they'll come to recognize that it's really the Christians who are the true church, the true people of God. Uh, And at the end of that verse, it says, I've loved you. I've loved you. I mean, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, Jesus is often described as the bridegroom and the church is his bride. It means he loves the church. He loved this church in Philadelphia. He loves this church here in Gilnahurt. And we can be confident in our situation because he's in control and he loves us. And he will keep, he will keep us, he says uh, in verse 10. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. It doesn't mean that he's going to take them out of the situation, but it means he's going to protect them in the situation. So whatever they have to face, and we all, we all live in a broken, this broken world, just like people who aren't Christians. We all share in you know, their accidents, their illnesses, their bereavements, their tragedies. 
Uh, and everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike, we all live in the, this situation, but Jesus promises here that I will keep you in that situation. I will hold on to you. I will, I'll not let you uh, fall. I'll hold on to you. He'll keep them. He says then in, in verse 11, I'm coming soon. I'm coming back again. One day I will return in power and glory and I'll, I'll establish my kingdom in all its fullness. A kingdom of peace and joy uh, and justice. A, a, a kingdom of love where there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more sin. And I'm going to come back and do that. You can be confident of that. And I think the, the last few verses, verses 11 to 13, he, he, he'll make their future secure. I think this is the point between these, uh, where he talks about the crown and the pillar and the name. He says, I, I'm, I will hold on to you and you will be my people with me forever. We'll be together. You'll enjoy my perfect presence and, and, and nothing, nothing, Nothing will rob you of that. Uh, Name, if you take my Bible and you open it at the front, uh, if you ever pick it up and open it, you'll see my name. So give it back to me if you find it. Okay? It belongs to me. It's mine. And that's the point behind saying, I'll put my name on you. I'm going to say, right, you belong to me. You're my possession. And I'm not going to let go of you. Um, so that's the confidence we can have. You see, this is the confidence that Jesus provides. I managed to get through my five subpoints pretty quickly there, didn't I? He's in control. He loves them. He will keep them. He will come again. And he will make their future secure. They will be his people and enjoy his presence forever. The future of the church is to reign with Christ throughout eternity. So here, here's what we see in this letter to the church at Philadelphia. It's a church which is lacking in strength, but which, and is facing opposition, but it has been faithfully serving the Lord. The door that he has opened for them, they've, they've gone through it. And they're serving him. And they've endured. And now he comes to them and he says, um, hold on to that. Keep on doing that. Um, the church may be, today may be appear weak, opposed, marginalized uh, in places. Um, but where there are open doors, it's to continue to serve faithfully. We need to be faithful. We need to endure. We need to witness. We need to serve as the Lord opens doors for us. That's our responsibility. That's our calling to keep on doing this. Hold on to the word. Hold on to Jesus. Keep trusting in him. Keep obeying him. Keep serving him. And we can be confident that Jesus is with us by his spirit. And that the future belongs to us. I mean, contemporary society would say, oh, you Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. You're finished. You're done with. You're irrelevant. 
move over and, and let us uh, have, uh, do our thing. But no, it's the future belongs to the church. We are the people of God. Christ came into this world not only to save sinners, not only to establish his kingdom, but to create his church, a people for his praise and glory uh, throughout eternity. So we can be confident in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Thank you for the encouragement that you provide for us. We thank you for your promises to us. And we thank you that you always keep your promises. That we can be confident in you. We can trust you. We can keep going even if at times we feel we're weak and lack resources. But we can trust you that you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name.